I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to be with Dr. David Schultz, wildlife vet. G'day, mate. How are you? Very well, Adrian. Steve. Mate, thanks for having us, and thanks for coming on. I've been wanting to get you on for a long time. Also, too, you've just became a member of the Order of Australia. Yes, yes, that was a bit of a surprise, I can tell you, yes. We should have a drum roll when you say that. A drum roll? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, congratulations, mate. Thank congratulations. you. Yeah, well deserved. And we're here at the Waite Institute, and you've yep. got a facility here where you work with, is it three species of, yellow, uh, of rock wallabies? No, only, well, we were, we did have two species. We were using yellow-footed rock wallabies as surrogates for the brush-tail rock wallaby. And what we were doing with them was, because we had so few in the wild left, and we had very, very few brushies in captivity as well, we were cross-fostering. So that, we haven't been doing that for four or five years now, but in those early days when we had so few, we had to try and grow the population faster then it would grow naturally. And so we were taking pouch young out of the mothers, out of the does, when they were about oh, three, maybe four, sometimes a bit less and sometimes a bit more weeks old, and we were putting them into, into yellowfoots, the surrogates. And the reason for doing that was that the moment the pouch became empty in the brush tail she would activate the pregnancy again and so the blastocyst that was sitting at the top of the reproductive tract would then start to implant and in one month you get another kid and if you had enough surrogates around you could keep taking them out and keep putting them into other mothers that that wasn't always successful, but what we've worked out was that we were, we had about a 70-odd percent success rate, so we were growing the population faster than we would if we'd just allowed the mother to look after the one each year. And the mothers that you were getting the young from, were they wild animals? No, well, they were initially, yes. Um, and when we started off, we had three breeding brushies and it turned out that they were all siblings. We got them as young'uns and uh, they grew up and uh, bred and, and it was a little bit of a genetic uh, problem, possibly. So what we, we got around that by bringing in some central which is a, another subspecies, if you like it, not quite classified as a subspecies, but for all intents and purposes, it's slightly different. And uh, we brought that in to give us a little bit of genetic diversity. And um, all of that has resulted in a reasonable number of animals now that uh, are reasonably genetically diverse and the Victorians have got hold of them and are doing their thing on a larger scale back in Victoria but the animals that they basically had 
came from the ones that we started off with and kept on breeding for quite a few years. Um, we got them established and now the, uh, the captive population, I'd have to say, was probably fairly secure. But the numbers in the wild, particularly where we've let them go, are still very small. So with the original three females being related, why did you not go and get any more from that area? Why did you have to go for the sort of subspecies? Well, you want to go walking around Snowy River National Park? Right, it was just to too difficult. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> Makes it's sense. Easy, easy to say, but... Yeah. But, and of course... I didn't know if it was because the, the, it just wasn't there, the diversity of well, unrelated. Well, as it's turned out, there's... It, they're, they're probably not the most diverse group of animals there are, but but you've got two problems. I say you've got the physicality. You just can't go out and get them. And I tell you what, tell you what it takes a hell of a lot of time to get permits to do it yeah, okay. as well. And so... And it's not without risk. I mean, in those early days, we did take pouch young out and take them from the pouch from the well, take them from the pouch in the national parks, walk them out to an airstrip at Galantope, to Essendon, then by private plane to Adelaide Airport. And then we'd pick them up from Adelaide and bring them back and stick them into a surrogate. And we did that a few times, and, um, and that's all a bit novel. And Travel better than us. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. And, and we, were getting, we were getting pouch young sent in from Tidbin Villa and whatnot. Um, Qantas were doing that. They never really... Um, sponsored us even though they're the flying kangaroo um and we um yes it was it was a little bit interesting in the early stages trying to get them through the (laughs) through all the security and whatnot but we we had a good system going there and and um we we as i say we built the population up to quite a a healthy lot even though they weren't as diverse as they could be but they're getting on top of that now and the Victorians have got as I say probably quite a healthy population the population here at weight is getting old and as I said the animals are all overrepresented, so they're not that valuable to the system now but you know bushfires um, the ones that were threatening the ACT were cause for concern over there and they took animals from Tidbinbilla and the val- most valuable ones genetically and flew them down to, or flew them on, maybe they didn't fly them, but however, they got them down to Mount Rothwell out of fire danger and I believe they've taken them back now. But um, So you do need eggs different eggs in different baskets that's for sure what's the original reason for their decline out there well probably mainly fox as the that was the straw that broke the camel's back but in those early days it was hunting they um, i think at the turn of the uh, um, 1900s 
I reckon I read somewhere there was something like 200,000 skins wow. in London. Wow. I mean, to be fair, it's a beautiful pelt, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I imagine. Keeps them warm in some pretty inhospitable country. Wasn't what I was expecting you to say, Adrian. <laughs> uh, I mean, if, you, if you're using wallaby to eat and uh, harvest the animal and use all of it, that's fine. But 200,000? Mm. Seems a bit excessive to yeah, me. Yeah, we were, last year we were in... Lithgow in New South Wales and we interviewed Trevor Evans from Secret Creek and he was talking about when he was young all the places that Steve and I had gone walking that morning in the Blue Mountains all these beautiful peaks perfect habitat for rock wallabies they used to have rock wallabies there none there none there mm, none there yeah. at all now to speak of and so and and that's what we ran into trouble when we were letting them go in the Grampians with foxes and they put a pretty big hole into the ones we let go but there's there's and they seem to either the fox numbers have dropped right off or the animals have have now that have been beaten there for a long time and their kids have got a maybe maybe they're not quite as naive as they were um so it's either either or a bit of both and um they uh, we've had those the four surviving adult animals for oh, something like five years now, I'd say, five or six years even, and um, so they've become attuned to it. But there's continual pressure by foxes for sure that they have to keep up the baiting and and whatever to try and keep fox numbers down, and that is a commitment that you hope the Victorians keep up. They found tiger quolls in the Grampians a few years back, didn't they? They had a picture of one. This was this was um, this created a little bit of uh, <laughs> concern and happiness at the same time because while ours were breeding a little bit, we weren't getting any recruitment. And, of course, when someone found, or when we got a picture of a tiger quoll there, we said, well, that's a possibility of why we're not getting recruitment. But um, <laughs> so the brush tail recovery team weren't all that happy about it, but the tiger quoll recovery team were very happy about it. <laughs> we saw a lot of good news in the last 20 years with Yellowfoots. You know, they've come off the endangered list and they're quite secure now in the Flinders Ranges. Do you think we'll see something like that in the future with the brush tail? Well, you'd certainly hope so. Um, the the um, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a hard it's a hard question for me to answer uh, because we um, we're not there the whole time and and I suppose one of the one of the worrying things is to me that the Victorians don't do aerial baiting and the Grampians you'd think would be an ideal spot to do it where you don't have to put your baits out into where dogs are and it could be fairly safely efficiently and more cheaply done Um, and so to me there's always that worry that you only need to have a breeding pair take up residence around about where your wallabies are 
and they will learn to to catch wallabies and you, you, colony can't take a lot of predation pressure it can probably take some but but not a lot now that same principle occurs in the Snow River National Park too that the Vicks have the Victorians have to keep up that baiting continual and they don't they don't do it the most simple most simple and probably possibly even the most efficient way now they may have their reasons for doing it but the reason why we've done okay with our yellowfoots over here is because we've been able to get baits out efficiently through bounce back it's been a very successful that's project. probably why they won't do it if we've been successful with it <laughs> well, so you there. yeah ours are behind a chemical fence as David Peacock calls it, I like yes, that analogy. Yes, yes, yeah. And and when we put them out, at, when we put the elephants out at Aruna, we used a chemical fence. Then that was then um, Aruna is now being aerial baited, so I think predation down there is um, fairly minimal. Uh, we just recently went out. We had a uh, David Taggart had a student who went out and collected yellowfoot scats and those scats were brought back into the lab and they uh, did a bit of genetic analysis on it and came up with something like 15 animals. And it's not that many, but when you look at the area that, as I haven't seen it for years, but when you first looked, when I first looked at it, I thought, poor bloody things are going to have to eat rocks to live (laughs) around here so the mere fact that they've hung in for over 20 years now is something good but um, I think we're going to have to probably put in a few different uh, bits of genetics in there too at some point. I was talking to Bruce Jackson and he was saying that possibly these populations some of these northern Flinders populations might travel to other locations like Bin Bowery and maybe even beyond. Do you know anything about the no. Okay. Sorry. Don't know. All I can say is that we did lose uh, one girl up in when we let them let them go initially. We had one girl disappear for about three years and came back. Wow. And um, I don't know whether it was the collar was still operating or whether. And I think we probably just trapped her, um, but she still had her collar on um, and. Um, She'd, we thought she'd gone. So where she went? Interesting. No idea. Yeah. No idea. Now um, I've got to ask you. I hope you don't mind me asking. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> so brush tar rock wallabies are known to be escape artists, and yeah, this facility is right on the back of the Mount Lofty Ranges. Ever had anything jump the fence? That you're yeah, have to we've answer? lost a couple. Yeah. Okay. Moons and moons ago, we would um, when we had lots. Here, young ones here, um, they didn't always get on. Or, um, they could get out, but we haven't had one out for oh, 15 years, I reckon. Okay. Now, um, I asked because on a Facebook group um, called the SA Nature Tears, shout out. It's a great group. A lot of scientists are on it and people that are just enthusiastic about nature and they share their photos of plants and birds and everything else. And um, A couple of months back, somebody put a photo up of... It was a wall- it was a blurry photo. It was in someone's backyard, 
It to me, someone asked, someone tagged me and asked what it was, and I, I said it's probably a swamp wallaby. Um, and I had other people say it's definitely not a swamp wallaby. That looks like a, a brush tail rock tail. wallaby. And I, I left it at that. But the debate carried on. But yeah, that's why I thought I'd ask. Yeah, there's um, uh, Jason Van Wienen rang up tags the other day and said there's been a report of one in I think it was Sturt Gorge. I think it was Sturt Gorge. That'd be good yeah, habitat for a rock wallaby. Well, you think it's yeah, yeah, right. at the back yes, of mine? Yeah. <laughs> so, so they've obviously been brought in somewhere somehow, got out again. Yeah. Oh, these things, they make yellowfoots look very, very pedestrian. <laughs> oh wow! Really? <laughs> Yellowfoots wouldn't know how to jump compared to these guys. Wow! They're very good, very very good. If I was to separate young ones and put them into this paddock here, if we were trying to uh, send them somewhere else and we wanted to catch them up quickly, separate them from the main group, so that it's going to make it easier to catch. I couldn't guarantee that the next day I went in, they'd still be in there. They'll go back to where their mums are or their mates are. And if they're happy, they'll stay. But if they're not happy, these eight, nine-foot fences won't stop them. (laughs) If you look at them like we saw a couple earlier, the yellowfoots look more agile. Build-wise, they're but they're just not. They're wow. not. Yeah. They seem stockier, don't they? Yeah, they, they do. Fluffy, they do seem yeah. a bit stockier, and but oh, the yellowfoots. The yellowfoots are more stocky. They're heavier. Yeah. Yellowfoots are heavier than the brushies. They seem very oh, muscular, though. The brushies, don't they? Like they, they seem more, more compact solid. and yeah. solid. Yeah. yeah wow. Like, like springs. No, well, these these guys use the corners, so they. They'll, corner, corner. They'll, yeah, <laughs> corner to corner and over. Parkour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what's made you want to work with um, endangered Australian animals? How did that journey start for you? Well, it was, I suppose, I was in practice for nearly 20 years and uh, we had a, a fairly, we had a very large bird clientele and associated with that, you end up with other wildlife as well. And when Peg Christian was alive, she referred a few things down. And so eventually you get a bit of a reputation for doing wildlife. Um, although um, it wasn't the prime reason. For me, I was always a birdo. And uh, the, other, uh, the other things were just interesting. But... I suppose the reason why you do the bird thing as well, it's not just a bird thing. It's the fact that you're into a natural situation and if you're in that situation, if you're in a natural place, conservation happens to just be the very next step, doesn't it? And so from a professional point of view while we were doing the the human servicing the human animal bond people love their budgies just as much as their cocker spaniels and, and their whatevers you, you I got to the stage where I'm thinking my my profession 
wasn't that far advanced, but at least we were moving somewhere down on the bird scene and the wildlife scene, and yet it was still servicing the human-animal bond. So there had to be more in it for me. And so when the job at the zoo came up, I was fairly keen to um, get involved. And when Robert Baker, who was the director at the time, had brought the odd beastie out, they all seemed to get better. So, <laughs> so that's good. So, so my record wasn't blotted very much, and and that put me in probably some sort of reasonable position to get the job. And I thought that well, at least in that situation, you might be able to, or I might be able to fulfil my conservation angle um, with my profession, and it. Yes, it was very slow. <laughs> um, the zoo is a body that, particularly Adelaide Zoo, has to struggle a bit, partly because it wasn't funded like other mainland zoos. Adelaide Zoo was a, wasn't a statutory body, it was a private society, and so they had to beg, borrow and steal, and conservation costs money, and they didn't have a massive amount. We were just going places and then we weren't, which is, that made me very sad. And I lost a bit of enthusiasm for the zoo when that happened. And then basically after that I retired, a few years after that I retired, or at least I dropped back tried from, to retire well well no dropped back from being the senior vet to then just part-time and then eventually retired so whether or not it will in the future i i suppose just every now and again i read stuff what taronga are doing and i'm thinking they are probably doing quite an amount about conservation and that would that would make a lot of the vets there because they're all probably the same as myself in terms of wanting to bring their their profession into the conservation area, and they would be getting a fair amount of satisfaction out of that. Now, whether Adelaide's doing it to that extent, I'm I think it's a struggle now, and like I think like not just your veterinary side but I think every keeper now gets into the job thinking that they can make a difference in the environment and out there as much as in the zoo and I don't think any like many zoos now really get the option to do that no no partly because they need to it's it's hard for them to know whether they're a business Mm. and if they're not a roaring successful business then you can understand why some of the the glory moments aren't mm. going to happen in terms of conservation even though you're still doing conservation by by having visitors into the zoo alone but yeah well you you have to more. you you have to i mean the zoo's the zoo's job well i would think say from an adelaide my, my opinion of adelaide zoo for example is and they do call it it should be connecting people with nature 
and they do say that but they also say they're associated with conservation and and things like that and 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 they may be doing this and that and the odd other thing as well but mm. but as a an educational unit it should be getting people to appreciate the natural world that's exactly yeah. what motivates me to do what mm. i do is just mm. connecting people with nature, nature. Yeah. yeah and it doesn't and a zoo doesn't need anything more than that mm. really but if it can go further I think right. a lot of yeah, a yeah. lot of the staff within the zoo do want more. Do than want that? that. <coughs> yes, want yeah. more than that. Yeah. Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a tricky one. You know, we've said it many times in the show. South Australia has the worst mammal extinction rate in Australia, and Australia doesn't have a great, you know, extinction rate as it is. Well, has a great extinction rate if you want to put it that way. Um, are you positive? Yeah, I mean, you've probably seen a fair, a fair few positive stories with the rock wallabies and things. Yeah, I, yes, I think I am because the job has been taken out of government hands and it's in non-government organisations' hands now. You've got your bush heritages, you've got your Australian Wildlife Conservancies and, and those are people that can run things efficiently and they get money. Which is great, yeah. And they can then afford to do what they're doing. Whereas if that was in governmental hands, just you'd be mm. waiting forever and a day. Mm. And so from that point of view, where they are taking over certain properties and whatnot, outback properties, and trying to re revegetate and we'll just get the stock off for goodness sake yep it's all you have to do maybe keep your root numbers down a bit um and things will come back and it doesn't mean that you can't have a pastoral industry it just means that it shouldn't be all pastoral industry particularly if you've got connecting properties and things like that from that point of view i suppose i am a bit more optimistic that is a very yeah it is a massive positive really that yeah the private sector is getting involved yeah, in it yeah um, yeah yeah the national parks things that seem to be whether they're great reservoirs of of natural of the natural world i suppose they are i suppose they are mm. but but um you don't i think that we have to do other things you have to take the degraded habitat and get it up and running again whereas a lot of the national parks things have always been scrub it's and and i'm not mm. saying for the government not to do that but no but it's not but, adding but it, it doesn't seem to be adding yeah yes it's, it's a fence it off. Be correcting the problem yeah we'll build houses around it and that'll yeah. be fine and, yes yeah because yeah. we've still got this natural bit of scrub there yeah. Yeah. yeah well it'd be nice to to link up more of these natural environments yeah yep. like nesting boxes and, and wildlife corridors yes. yeah steve yes. made a good point the other day did i yes yeah, I, I was as surprised as you are now <laughs> oh. um but uh we always talk about you know the kids have got all this to to do now it's the kids job to save the world because you know we 
we can only do so much. But you, you said, Steve, you've probably forgotten. Um, no idea where you're going. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> you said that it won't be the next generation or the generation after that. It'll take many, many yeah. generations. And if we all do a little bit mm-hmm. um, working towards it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can't sort this out in... 50 years or 100 years no. it's got to be in the next 1,000 no. years no. it's still got to be going and that's almost a relief to hear that because mm. I think you kind of go we can oh, back off a bit is that what you mean yeah <laughs> well you don't <laughs> become dispirited yeah that's right yeah, yeah. it's and not too you much can, you keep going I mean I can't ever see myself ever not being involved with brush tails mm. oh well, possibly when I'm in a box yeah <laughs> <laughs> We'll break you down as food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in that time working at Adelaide Zoo, you would have worked with a fair diversity of animals then. Yep, I would, yes. Yeah. Everything, yes. And and don't forget, that was in the fairly early days too. There was um, Dave Butcher, Ray Butler, and Ted Finney, and me at Adelaide. So there were bugger all vets involved in the zoo world in those early days and um, I was very lucky because at that at the time I came in was also the time when when intramuscular anaesthetics became more available now that means that you can actually get hold of your animal um, and still have a live animal at the end of the day now that wasn't always the case in the early days you sometimes didn't get it quite right but um, it meant that if you can get hold of your animal um, you can do a lot learn a lot more about it and do a few more things I mean in the first early days um, I was involved mainly with getting IDs on animals Instead of having to hold them down and to do a tattoo here or a tattoo there, we could do it under anaesthetic and it was just so much uh, so much easier and, um, and more efficient. I've watched you do health checks in here on rock wallabies and you just put the gas mask on them and away yeah. you go and they're yeah. quite compliant at that point. Yeah. Yep, same with birds, although we used ether in birds. Uh, I always get into talking amongst younger vets and I use the word ether you can nearly see the look of total disbelief on their faces <laughs> I tell you it was a damn good anaesthetic for birds yeah oh it was brilliant it's hard to kill them okay well that's good it was good yeah have you ever had to try to gas a wombat I've told this story before but it's very hard to put a wombat under with gas <laughs> they got really low well if you've got them if, yeah, they are hard to manually restrain, but if you've got them in a bag, you're in with a slightly better chance, but I think probably most of the time Zolotil works quite well with them and so you can always just slow them down a bit and then drop them to the lower plane with your gas. Yeah, OK. This is a hand-raised wombat snuffles was on the table and they put the gas on her and she was sucking back all, all this gas and she oh, was just wide awake for a very long time. Time, was she? Oh, yeah. OK. No, well, <laughs> that it plugged into the airline? It could have been. It could have been. <laughs> I was starting to feel the effects on the other side of the room from the gas. Oh, OK. Yeah, no, I, I can't remember having a real problem with that. As I say, probably because we never, ever did it straight off 
we always gave them a pre-med oh, yes. first, yeah. slow them down. Okay. Yeah. So you got your binoculars here. You do a bit of bird watching up in the scrub sometimes? Well, I do it for identifying mainly the wallabies. No, um, oh, yeah, we've seen a, the odd peregrine here occasionally and even the odd wedgie. Just in the tree above us, I've had a young wedge tail sitting there looking at the wallabies. Now, that's interesting you say that. (laughs) We we get them over Ras occasionally, and I'm worried, like, because a wedgie could take a wallaby, yeah? Oh, yes. Oh, easy. Does it concern you? No. If it happens, it happens. Nothing you can do about it. That's, yes. (laughs) I'm not putting a roof on this lot. (laughs) (laughs) We did think about it, you know, that they do a bird netting with the wire inside, and I just thought, no. And it's lovely being in the enclosure without a roof. You don't feel like you're in an enclosure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, you never know what you're going to see here. But it's mainly to identify if I've got an animal with a runny eye or runny nose or whatever. You want to get a decent look at a pouch and you want an ID of the beast. What colour's the ear tag, for example? Well, bins Binoculars out. make life so much easier. That's yeah. a good idea. So you said you've got less rock wallabies here now? Yes. Than, than you used to have? What, what are the reasons for them still being here? Are you still breeding? Oh, they're old them? ones. That's just uh, old they're retired. Old, they're older stock and um, the Victorians don't want any more of our stock, our bloodlines so they'll be slowly dropping off the um, off the perch. Do you see anything else coming in then to replace what you're doing uh, another animal? Well that'll be, that'll depend on, on David Taggart who's the uh, the chief mover and shaker on this sort of thing. I mean if I'm, if I'm still upright <laughs> and he decides he needs something else and I can help, well I will obviously mm. but um, whether or not Anything such as say tiger quolls or anything like that should eventuate from it. Well, I mean the potential is here mm. if it's not claimed for other purposes. And when you've got your plant genomics next door, which is a moving <laughs> and shaking area of agriculture, then we might be mm. swallowed up. To get time um, I mean, the university has been very good to us in that regard in that they've accepted what we're doing here is fine and while David Taggart is he's not an employee of the university he has strong connections with it and so they're a little bit hesitant I imagine to kick us out but I would think that we could be on borrowed time how long it will be I don't know It'd be nice to get something else in to try and have the success with something else? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say tiger quals, you'd want a roof. Have you heard David Peacock's idea of putting, I mean, this is before the fires, but reintroducing tiger quals onto Kangaroo Island? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we were involved um, with the whole Chuditch thing up in the... Um, the Flinders Rangers Flinders there. Rangers, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was... That was um, Sorry, what's Chuditch? Western the Western Quark. Uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Was, um, yeah, and I, I have a foundation, and uh, we put in a few bob for that, get that going, and it seems like it's going all right. He's a hero of mine. 
he comes to my house every week because his daughter Erin volunteers at Animals Anonymous, so he brings yeah. her up, and it's yeah. great just to, to chat with him. But just the success of that leads the way to other potential reintroductions, mm. doesn't it? Mm. And the one that Tags and I and Dave Peacock, I'm sure, would really relish would be Devils into the Grampians. I mean, the subfossil record says 600 years ago, so it's not entirely mm-hmm. unknown, and that would be a lovely biological control over your cats and young foxes. 600 years ago? That's, That's not, not that long. long no. No. I thought the dingo took out the thylacine and the devil when it arrived. Yeah, well, it, it may have depressed as as dingo spread south or whatever they did may have been a factor in their demise i can't see it happening now and so why they're not back in there Mm. oh i do know why but (laughs) 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 well it's, it's too big a step it's we don't have enough politicians with either the knowledge or the get up and go to do this. The pastoral industry would be a little bit tentative. Tentative about it. But, you know, devils are not necessarily rampant killers like dingoes. And if there's enough kangaroos around, particularly dead ones, then why not? That sort of what excites me. Or um, this is hopeful, Steve. That's what excites me about the future is the people that are going to get into politics, the, the next generations that are going to come into politics, I think are going to be really more, connected with nature. more willing mm. to, yeah. to make those changes. Yeah. And if they accept... Just hope it's not too late. And if they, yeah, if they accept that the short-term problems for our wildlife is habitat degradation that's occurred and predation... Mm by exotic animals Mm. if they accept that that is the problem and you want to try and get on top of it you've got to start trying other things and your biological control to me is no-brainer you must at least try it david spoke about all the hoops he had to jump through and there were a lot of naysayers in the you know the chadich reintroduction but that success of that, I mean, that's going to give strength to future introductions. You would, you would hope, yes. And, and all of these things are they're learning processes. Anyone that says, well, this will or this won't work, even experienced people, you have to, you have to say, well, how do you really know? And I think you've got to try a lot of these things. And obviously you use the experience to find out the way you'd go about it but trying it because each area is a little bit different isn't it Mm. and how things adapt we found too that with our with our brushies that those that survived six months they had a significantly lower chance of being predated if they can get them over that six months and these are the sorts of things that you can learn 
when you're doing something and the more things you learn like that mm. the better your chances assuming people know about all the things that have been learned in other words not trying to reinvent the wheel mm. learn by our mistakes as well yes totally mm. totally it's great that these animals are adapting to hopefully survive alongside foxes though we had nathan from arid recovery on the show and he was talking about if they were to release a betong the first thing it did when it got out the fence was get itself killed because <laughs> they'd grown up with no predation yeah. so now they have these pre-release enclosures where the animals go in with there's some cats in there some of them get killed learn. they learn yes and that's a in a way giving in isn't it <laughs> <laughs> be nice to not have your cats but whether that's just pie in the sky Devil, devil's in the ground i mean look the grampians is one of my favorite sure? places on the planet and to see devils at the grampians i mean it's just nice knowing that there's brush tar rock wallabies and tiger quals there i'll probably never see one it's just nice knowing they're there it's remote enough but devils would just be phenomenal tim faulkner and um, devil ark devil ark probably love that oh, there'll be enough around mm. to try it it's just knowing what channels to go down do you know tim faulkner um aussie aussie ark Devil, it used to be devil's ark now i think they've expanded to aussie, aussie ark they've yeah. got a he calls it the engine room doesn't he steve mm. they have the engine room engine yeah. room yeah. yeah it's a the packer family donated a heap of land to him yeah barrington tops yeah yeah uh, we, uh, we we were going to head up there before COVID. We were going to. He invited us up to interview uh, him sitting out in the Barringtons. Yeah, and we are going to head up there. We definitely yeah. are. We, <laughs> we were going to go, yeah. but, but when we can fly again, yeah. Yeah. best we can do is wait at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> wait, wait institute. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, yeah. see what you yes. did there. See what I did. Yeah, thanks, mate. Is there anything that you would say to someone that wants to get involved in the conservation industry that you might want to share in part? Some wisdom. <laughs> well, I mean, the the obvious the obvious thing, the first thing is you'd be a volunteer. But that, you know, how old are you? What's your station in life? Uh, have you got time? Um, it, you're volunteering. I mean, all of these NGOs they have their volunteers, and they're critical, I imagine, to most of the shows so that's the the way but if you're a young kid what do you do well you volunteer for a start even as a young kid i mean i volunteered to work in the practice veterinary practice as a student and i did that for five years quite aside from the additional experience experience that we had to do on farms and all over the place and for kids well, if they can get out and get their hands dirty, they learn a little bit. Then I suppose university gives them a few extra qualifications, a little bit more knowledge. Pretty tight area, though, to get into, so it's probably not a guaranteed area, but, you know, if you're persistent... Volunteering is definitely the way to get in. Yeah. In, like you it say, a, a difficult industry to yeah. get into. Well, Volunteering's got yeah. to be the best. And it's the same at the zoo too. Kids of some kids say, "Oh yeah, I just want to work with animals, yeah, wild animals, or something like that." That's fine. Um, 
But the way of doing it is to get there first so that people can see what you're made of. I can remember one day I was, um, when I was in practice, I, I was wanting a new nurse and probably not allowed to do it these days for one reason or another. But as my new, the new people came in for an interview, it was, I was just behind the consulting table and whatnot. As they came in, I handed them a kestrel. <laughs> Can't see a problem. <laughs> no, I couldn't and still don't. And the person that got the job was the one that showed no fear and did exactly as I showed them. Okay, they weren't a road scholar, this or that or whatever, but they just had that connection mm. straight away and that's what I was looking for. Practical experience in the first minute. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're allowed to do that with brown snakes. <laughs> well, well, if, you, if you show them, <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, perhaps a bit. Kestrel's not quite as dangerous as a brown snake. <laughs> Have you done much work with venomous snakes over the years? No, not a lot. I mean, we did at the zoo. I mean, I've done surgery on taipans and this and that, and mm. a whole stack of things that the, that you do, but not a lot. And I wouldn't call myself anything like expert at, uh, at reptile medicine. Now, I mean, this is the other thing too, that since I first started back in 84, the amount of knowledge that's available to everybody, young kids, young vets coming through, and they take it on board. Um, it's astounding what they know now and what's been found out that I'm a real hack old-fashioned <laughs> well you can jump on google and yes. look up specific things that yeah. wikipedia is always yes. right yes. Yes. <laughs> those, those yeah those yeah but those they might not always be a hundred percent right perhaps but it's just a product of the enormous amount of knowledge that is around these days yeah, it's all it's all positives for the flow of information. I mean, there would have been a time well before all of our times where vets didn't even have a phone. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you sort of you got an animal on the table. I mean, I've seen vets call other vets up. You know, when yes, I've had different so animals in there. What do you think here? Yeah, 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 like yeah, that, yeah You yeah. take that and for granted. Mm, yeah. yeah, yes, and that's um, yeah. I'm not sure I ever did that, but you certainly needed to talk to your peers. Yeah. And I, I, as a young vet, um, still in practice, I remember going over to Taronga a couple of times to see and talk with Ted Finney. And so that was my way of getting my extra experience. And back in 1980, I got a Churchill Fellowship too. And that was to look at avian, clinical avian medicine and surgery in UK and US. That was a very worthwhile exercise for me. Mm. Gave me a lot of confidence, mm. quite aside from uh, other things that you learned, but it put it, I knew what I knew 
and I knew that in a number of cases, I knew more than the people that I was going to visit, particularly on the natural side. As I've always said back here, uh, if you're the first vet doing original work and you're the only one, it's not hard to be an expert, but where I was in front of my colleagues was that whenever I looked inside a box, I knew what was in it, whereas a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, it's a bird, mm. but that's it. Didn't know what it ate or whatever. So I was a bit lucky in that regard as well. And that can all be things you learn through volunteering, I mean. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yep. Things that, yeah, you, you get to hang out with people that are other people that are interested and too. They and they can see what you're made of. Yeah. Mm. And iron sharpens iron. Mm. Mate, thanks so much for your time. Congratulations again on your well-deserved award. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Mate, and thank you for all you do on behalf of Australia and its wildlife, mate. Good day. And, guys, thank you for listening. <laughs>